turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4 as hopefully this morning we bring to a close our series on the little book of 2 Timothy. Uh, Looking this morning at the subject matter, the blessing of friends and the word of God. I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. We'll begin reading there in verse 9 and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Paul says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Father, we're so thankful for your word. And the message that we have heard throughout the book of 2 Timothy. That we need to run our race. That we need to set an example to others. And others need to pick up the baton, so to speak, and run with it. We each have a race to run and we have our part to do and we're to be investing in others. And Lord, help us to live our lives in such a way that like the Apostle Paul, when we get to the closing moments of life, there's nothing but hope and victory and assurance that we have because of Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. A reporter in San Bernardino, California, arranged for a man to lie in a gutter on a busy street. Hundreds and hundreds of people walked by him and they saw his need, but no one did anything to intervene and help. Newspapers around the country a few years ago told how 38 people uh, watched a man stalking a young lady until finally he attacked her. These people witnessed that. 
And no one did anything to intervene and help her. Not one of them even so much as picked up a telephone to call 911. A couple of teenagers in Detroit discovered a woman in a telephone booth who had suffered a heart attack. They carried her to a nearby home and rang a doorbell. The reply was, get off of my porch and take her with you. A Kentucky doctor was driving down the highway to visit a patient when he saw an accident take place. He stopped and gave medical attention to the injured who later sued him. Folks, we live in what at times can be a very cold and impersonal world. It's in this kind of world that you and I need Christian friends. One report showed the average American has somewhere between 500 and 2,500 acquaintances that you simply recognize when you see them. It's said that we have 20 to 100 casual friends, people whose names we know and we talk to them on a very superficial level. We have 10 to 30 mentor type friends, people who have influenced our lives in one way or another. Seven personal friends. Four best friends with whom we feel like we could sit down and share just about anything. A less encouraging report says that only one American in five has somebody that they would consider a close friend. In this type of world, we need friends. Folks, as we get to the end of this letter, Paul writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, you would expect by this point in the letter that they would, there would just be some casual loose ends to wrap up and there would be nothing communicated of great significance. But that's not what we find. We find some real gems in these closing verses of 2 Timothy. What means the most to us in the closing moments of life? That's what we're going to look, uh, look at this morning. I feel like I can address that as a pastor because I've witnessed this countless times. Paul nails it here. He explains what I've witnessed many, many times and as some of you have as well. In those last moments of life, Christians desire to have their friends around them. They want Christian friends and family and they want the Word of God. Folks, it's not our accomplishments. It's not our titles. It's not our bank account. It's not many things that we could brag about. It's having friends around us and the Word of God around us that is going to minister to us in those most serious moments of life. And that's what we see here. 
First of all, I want you to notice with me, in the most trying moments of life, we need fellow believers around us. Look with me at verse 9. He says, do your best to come to me soon. And then over in verse 21, he says, do your best to come before winter. Paul wants Timothy to come to him soon. And there's two reasons behind that. Number one, in verse 21, as he writes, winter is soon approaching. And Paul desires to have some things that he desperately needs more importantly Paul wants Timothy to come to him because he's lonely Timothy's travel to Rome from Ephesus would take somewhere around four to six months from the time that he began his journey And the shipping lanes in the Mediterranean were closed for winter. They were closed between the months of November and March every year. So Timothy, even as Paul writes this, and Timothy reads those words, Come to me soon, come before winter. Timothy needs to get on a boat and he needs to begin making his journey to the Apostle Paul right away. I want you to remember Paul is in a cold dark dungeon in Rome. It's his second arrest and he knows this time he is not going to be delivered. He knows that he is going to be executed. His first arrest was what the book of Acts closes with. His house arrest. And in that arrest, he was allowed to have people come and go and visit him. And he wrote what is known as the captivity epistles. Books like Philippians, for example, or Colossians, or a number of others. Very productive writing time in his life during his first imprisonment. He was set free and he's been rearrested again. And this time he's in a cold, dark dungeon, a lonely place there in Rome. He's in what is known as the Mamertine Prison. I want you to listen to what one source says about the Mamertine prison. It's located in Rome at the foot of Capitoline Hill overlooking the ruins of the old Roman Forum. When it was built, it was Rome's only prison. And it wasn't a prison like we would think of today. It was a dreaded place. It was more like a dungeon. And it was underground. Inmates would literally be lowered into it from up top. And there were rooms underneath where the prisoners would be awaiting their execution. Historical sources have described it as a dank and a foreboding place. And inmates rarely stayed in that place very long. Today a sign on the exterior of that building proclaims that it was the prison site of both the Apostle Paul and Peter as well. They were both in the Mamertine prison right before their execution. This is where the Apostle Paul is. And in that place, going through this very trying moment in his life, he greatly desires to have a Christian friend by his side. He wants Timothy, his son in the faith. Now I want you to remember, Paul is not a criminal the way we would think of a criminal today. The only thing Paul has been guilty of is preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And he would go into places that Ro- the Roman charge against him was of, uh, uh, of, of going against Caesar and not worshiping Caesar and burning incense to Caesar and saying there's another God other than Caesar. And Paul has been arrested and he's been put in this dangerous dark place. I hope you were here for the movie last Sunday night, The Insanity of God, as we saw the testimony of missionary after missionary in very dangerous places in the world today. You say, Scott, people today don't face things like the Apostle Paul is facing here. Yes, they do. There were more people martyred for their Christian faith in the 20th century than all the 19 previous centuries combined. Missionaries all over the world today going through very torturous things in, in, in dangerous prisons around this world. And just like the Apostle Paul, they're not guilty of doing anything other than preaching the gospel. It makes you appreciate some of the freedoms that we have in America. But folks, it also concerns you some of the things that we're reading in the news. What Christians around America are facing. The way some of the business owners are being attacked and and their business is taken from them and so forth simply because they're trying to govern themselves by biblical principles. There is a battle for religious liberty that is happening even now in America that we need to wake up to. And we need to be sensitive to it because there are those who are suffering and it makes you wonder, are, are all these things are foreshadowing of worse things to come in the country? Paul's in this prison and he wants Timothy. Folks, it reminds us of what we need to do as a Christian family when there are believers in prison. I, along with others in our congregation, have had the blessing of going into jails before, even right here in Cabarrus County, and ministering to fellow believers who are there in prison and evangelizing the lost. I'm grateful for those in our church who do that on a regular basis. We need to remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 25 when he told that parable about the sheep and the goats. And he said, blessed are you for you visited me when I was in prison. And they said, when Lord did we visit you in prison? And he said, "When, when you visited one of the least of these my brethren, you did it unto me. As we have opportunity, we need to reach out for those in tough circumstances of life. Paul's in one of those tough circumstances. And in a moment like that, he wants a Christian friend with him. He wants Timothy to be there with him. And so he says, Timothy, come to me soon. We need to remember Paul's special relationship with young Timothy. You've got to go all the way back to the book of Acts, Acts 16, to see the beginning of it, the first time that Paul met Timothy. It was at the start of his second missionary journey, and Paul and Silas were in Derby and Lystra. That's where Paul met Timothy, and from that point on, Timothy accompanied Paul. And as we read 2 Timothy, Timothy has become the pastor of the church at Ephesus but you remember what Paul said about Timothy to the Philippians the letter to the Philippians written again under Paul's first imprisonment and they had sent Epaphroditus to minister to Paul 
And Paul said, I hope to come to you very soon, but in the meantime, I'm going to send Timothy to you. He's my true son in the faith. I have nobody else in my life quite like him. You can read it for yourself in Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 19. He says, I have nobody like Timothy. Everybody else cares for their own interest and not for the interest of Jesus Christ. But Timothy, Timothy loves the Lord and loves you and loves me. And I'm going to send him to you. And when Timothy comes to you, it'll be as though I myself were coming to you. Special relationship. He mentions to Timothy here, he says, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. The word deserted here in the Greek text, a very strong word that Demas made a choice to abandon Paul and everything Paul stood for. And he turned back to the world. How sad. I take this to be a testimony that Demas had never truly been converted in the first place. Now folks, I realize some people are backslidden and the Lord will discipline them and bring them back. But I think a lot of times people do what they do because they were never converted to begin with. And their life ends up showing it. They turn back to the world. They may have joined the church. They may have even been baptized like these eight we've witnessed this morning. But they turn to the, Lord, uh, turn to the world and turn away from the Lord. And you never see any fruit come out of their life. Why is that? Because they were never born again to begin with. Remember what I've told you. You're not a Christian simply because you say you're one. John says in 1 John, Love not the world, nor the things of the world. For if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And the world's passing, the, passing away and everything in it. But those who do the will of God will abide forever. I think also about that parable of Jesus that addresses this, the parable of the soils. The sower goes out to sow the seed and it falls on four different kinds of soil. There's the hard soil, no response. Then the shallow soil. Then the soil that has weeds and thorns that choke out the word. And then there's the good soil. Now Jesus isn't presenting us there with a multiple choice. We can make this response to him or this response or that response or, or this response over here is the best one. You know, we really need to make that response but one of these others is okay too. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus points there's one legitimate response to the gospel. That third response was like Demas who turned back to the world because Jesus talks about the weeds and the thorns that choke out the word and he defines that as being all the things that are in the world and the deceitfulness of those things. Folks, we're seeing across the world today and across America and the church, we're seeing what would appear to be far too many Demases. People turning away from the church, turning back to the world. 
You say, do I have to be in the church? Theoretically, you don't have to be in the church to be saved. That would be adding something to the gospel. But practically speaking, you find in the New Testament that everybody who is genuinely converted is a part of a local fellowship and they're working together with other believers in God's mission. That is a mark of sonship. Demas has turned away from that and gone out to the world. Sad. He decided, unfortunately, that this world had more for him than the Lord. Next we meet Cretans. Cretans must have been a very capable assistant to the Apostle Paul because Paul mentions that he's gone to Galatia. Now remember the Galatian churches, they were under attack by heretics who were trying to add things to the gospel. Things like the Old Testament law and circumcision. They said Jesus is not enough. You need a Jesus plus something else, salvation. And Paul had to battle against false doctrine at places uh, like the Galatian churches. And Cretans has gone there, which speaks very well of him. And then he mentions uh, Titus, who has gone to Dalmatia. This is another one of Paul's trusted preacher boys. Paul wrote 1 Timothy, then Titus, then 2 Timothy. Titus, you remember, he had left one time at Crete, a very difficult place as well. Titus chapter 1 is not a very complimentary record of the Cretans at all. And Titus was sent there to put everything in order and appoint elders. So again, uh, just like Cretans, Titus was a very trusted friend of Paul. And so here are two men we could assume have gone out from Paul out of good motives and then Demas who has gone out from Paul out of bad motives. But Paul is lonely. He adds Luke is with him. Luke was a trusted companion. Remember Luke joined with the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. Luke recorded much of Paul's missionary travels and he wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke was a capable writer and historian. Daryl Bach, Dr. Daryl Bach points out the book of books of Luke and Acts together make up 27.1% of our New Testament. Out of almost 8,000 verses in the New Testament, Luke Acts comprises 2,157 verses while Paul's letters have 2,032 verses and John's writings have 1,407 verses. And so just think about it. Here are two men together in Rome whose combined writings make up almost 53% of our entire New Testament. Luke is there with Paul. Then look at what he says next. Get 
Mark and bring him with you because he's very useful to me in ministry. We first meet Mark, John Mark, in in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, we see the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. The Holy Spirit gave instructions to set Paul and Barnabas aside for the work that he had called them to. When they left, we see in Acts 13.5 that they carried John Mark with him. He is a helper to them. That's all we know about him at that point. And then in Acts 13.13, we're told that John Mark left them... And he returned, but he returned not to the church at Antioch that sent him out, but he returned to the church at Jerusalem. Was he ashamed to go back to Antioch because he bailed out of that mission trip? Maybe so. In Acts 14, we see that the first missionary journey continues and then the chapter closes with Paul and Barnabas going back to the church at Antioch and at the church of Antioch, they give a report of everything God did through them on that first missionary journey. And you'll notice they don't mention John Mark. Now, I see a touch of grace in that. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 says that love doesn't rejoice at at wrong and 1 Peter 4 says love covers a multitude of sins I think Paul and Barnabas probably just didn't want to highlight John Mark's shortcomings that he abandoned them when we come to Acts chapter 15 we see that after the Jerusalem council Paul said to Barnabas let's go back to these churches and minister to them again and strengthen them and Paul said okay, I mean Barnabas said okay that's great let's go let's get John Mark again and go and Paul says no we're not going to get John Mark he bailed out on us we're not going to take him again and the Bible says there was a huge dispute that erupted between Paul and Barnabas so that they split ways Barnabas took John Mark with him one direction Paul took Silas with him a different direction ten years later Mark John Mark's name shows up again as as Paul is writing to the Colossians and Paul says to the Colossians when you see John Mark welcome him so folks evidently the relationship has been patched up Then some years later, Paul's imprisoned in Rome. That's what we're reading here. And on top of Timothy coming to him, who else does he want? He wants John Mark. Folks, what a beautiful testimony of restoration between Christian brothers. And there in the closing moments of his life, Paul wants John Mark with him too. Well, that's not all about Mark. That 10 years that Mark dropped off the scene, he went to Rome with Simon Peter, heard Simon Peter preaching the gospel. He wrote Peter's words down. We have the gospel of Mark. So despite abandoning the first missionary journey, John Mark has come back around unlike Demas. And he's very fruitful to Paul in his ministry. Now folks, what point am I making? The point I'm making here is the Apostle Paul, a faithful witness. He's at the end of his life. He's in a trying moment, a very serious moment in his life. And what does he desire? He desires Christian friends around him.
I hope you have people like that. I hope as a believer in Christ, you're developing relationships because one of these days, you might think, I don't need anybody. Yes, you do. And there's going to be situations in your life you're going to need Christian brothers and sisters. And they're going to mean a lot to you. And that's what we see here in the life of the Apostle Paul. He wants these brothers around him. He also mentions here Tychicus. Tychicus is one who's going to to deliver this letter to Timothy. From Paul to Timothy. And he's going to take Timothy's place there at Ephesus. So that Timothy can make the journey to Rome and see Paul. But a wonderful thing about Tychicus is every time you see him in the New Testament, he's delivering a letter that becomes one of the letters of Scripture. Tychicus is like an original Gideon, the Gideons International, who go all over the world and they're delivering copies of the Bible. That's how Tychicus is. Everywhere you see Tychicus, he's delivering the Word of God. Great testimony. These are the people Paul has had around him. And he wants around him in these final moments of his life. Second thing I want you to see this morning. In the most trying moments of life, we need the word of God. Look at verse 13. He says, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books and above all the parchments. Now we're not going to spend much time on this point today, okay? But I want you to notice Paul desires several things. First of all, the cloak. The cloak in ancient times, it was a heavy woolen garment, a wrap that in ancient times they would wear in, in wet and cold seasons. Probably the fact that Paul doesn't have it, some scholars see that as as evidence that if he left it at Troas with Carpus, he was probably arrested in haste and they hauled him off and he didn't even have time to get his cloak and his books and the parchments. And he wants these things. He says, bring the books. Scholars believe that's probably other letters he's written as well as other documents. Maybe some of the other documents that make up other New Testament letters. He says, but above all, bring the parchments. The Old Testament, parchment parchment scrolls were one of the things the Old Testament scripture was written on. Parchment was animal skins, usually goat or sheep skins dried and they would write on parchment and it was more durable than paper. But again, the Old Testament was written on that. Many of the Old Testament documents. And Paul, by the the fact that Paul is saying bring the books, but above all the parchments, probably a surefire indication to us what he's talking about there is the Old Testament scriptures. What does Paul want? Paul wants not only Christian friends around him, but he wants the Word of God. Folks, I've been there at the bedside of people dying before, and they want Christian friends and families around them. uh, Christian friends and family. But you know what else they want? They'll say, Pastor, read something out of the Bible. 
This past week, leading a Bible study that I do outside of the church fellowship here, we were talking about that future hope that we have. We were studying a passage out of 1 Thessalonians 4, and I looked out there, and there were a couple of people crying, and they came up to me afterwards, and they said, Pastor, thank you, thank you, thank you for teaching us that scripture this morning. You have no idea what that message meant to us this morning. The hope and the assurance that we have that we're going to see our loved ones again who knew Christ. The scripture. Read Psalm 119 sometime. The psalmist goes on for 176 verses about the preciousness of the word of God. How the word of God is his counselors. And how through the word of God he says I've become wiser than all of my teachers and all of my enemies. And he just goes on and on and on talking about the blessedness of the word of God. Folks, in those trying moments of your life, open the pages of Scripture because God's going to encourage you through His Word. God's going to use other believers in your life and God's going to use His Word to minister to you. Thirdly, In the most trying moments of life, we need to be aware of God's presence. Look at verse 16 and 17. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Paul has some words of warning to Timothy about an enemy of the gospel. And then he talks about how nobody stood with him during his first trial, his first hearing. Notice he's not bitter about that. He doesn't blame anybody. He asks God to forgive him and not hold it against him. But the wonderful thing that he mentions is how God stood with him. Remember what Jesus said in this world, you'll have trial and tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. He goes on in John chapter 16 to say, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And he was talking about sending the Holy Spirit. Folks, we know that from the moment of our conversion, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is with us always. If you're a believer, a genuine believer who's been born again by the Spirit, you never, ever, ever, ever have to worry about God abandoning you. He is always with you. Now, you can can damage the fellowship you have with Him through sin, but He's still there. You You don't undo the relationship. The relationship is still there. That's why if there's things in your life that are grieving the Spirit, you need to deal with those so the preciousness of that fellowship with the Lord can be restored. But one of the blessed assurances you and I have as believers is that Jesus Christ is always with us. King David wrote in Psalm 139 about God's presence always being with. He said, if I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down into the depths of the earth, you're there. If I go this direction east, you're there. West, you're there. Everywhere around me, you encompass me with your love and your presence. And he said, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I can't even fathom it. God's presence in the life of a believer. 
in the most trying moments of life, you can know God's there. Men will disappoint you. You probably can think in your mind right now of people who have disappointed you in your life. But one thing's for sure, Jesus never fails. He'll not disappoint you. He's always there. Paul says, the Lord stood by me. Isn't that great? Here Paul is at the end of his life. He knows it and he wants his Christian brothers with him. He wants the word of God brought to him. And he has that blessed assurance that Jesus Christ is with him and has not left him. What wonderful assurances as he comes to the end of his life. What are you going to want at the end of your life? What do you turn to in the trying moments of your life? I think that says volumes about your faith or lack of it. Do you value your Christian friends and relationships and turn to them for support and encouragement and prayer in your hour of need? Do you turn to the precious Word of God? And are you assured that God is with you? He's not left you. You may not always see it. You may not see His presence with you today, but you'll see it in hindsight, His thumbprints all over your circumstances. What do you turn to? What brings you hope and comfort in your trying moments? I want you to bow your heads with me if you would please. Do you know of somebody right now who needs you the way that Paul needed Timothy? Don't delay, reach out to them. Maybe you are that person. And if you are that person, I hope you won't have too much pride to ask fellow Christians that you need their presence and their prayers and support. Your friends would want to know. They would want to be there. Let them know. Take up the Word of God. Let trials and tribulation be an invitation to you to open the Scripture and let God minister to you through it. And be assured that if you're God's child, you're not alone. You're never alone. Now, if you're not God's child, you need to come to Him this morning. Because these blessings and benefits I've talked about this morning are for those who have been reconciled to God through Christ. These assurances don't belong to you if you're not a believer. Come to Christ. I'd love to pray with you. When you get Christ, you not only get His family, but best of all, you get His presence, and He's always there. Lord, speak to hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.